Section 10 of The Jolly Parisienne and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. Mademoiselle Flavie by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 5. One at Last. The house adjoining the garden of the mansion was now the property of Nantes, who had bought it from his father-in-law. Out of caprice he refrained from letting the miserable garret where he had struggled against want for two months after his arrival in Paris. Since he had acquired an enormous fortune, he had on more than one occasion felt impelled to go and shut himself up in the little room for several hours. It was there that he had suffered, and it was there that he liked to enjoy his triumph. Again, whenever he met with any obstacle, he was wont to go there to reflect and to form great resolutions. Once there he again became what he had formerly been, and now, when the hand of death was upon him, it was in this attic that he determined to meet it. Nantes did not finish his work until eight o'clock in the morning. Fearing that fatigue might overcome him, he took a cold bath. Then he summoned several of his clerks for the purpose of giving them instructions. When his secretary arrived, he had an interview with him, and the secretary received orders to take the plan of the budget to the Tuileries, and to furnish certain explanations, if the emperor raised any fresh objections. After this, Nantes considered that he had done enough. He had left everything in order, he was not going off like a demented bankrupt. After all, he was his own property, he could dispose of himself. Nine o'clock struck, the time had come. But as he was leaving his study, taking the revolver with him, he had to suffer a final humiliation. Mademoiselle Chouin presented herself to claim the ten thousand francs which he had promised her. He paid her, and was forced to put up with her familiarity. She assumed a maternal air, and seemed to treat him as a successful pupil. Even if he had had any hesitation left, this shameful complicity would have confirmed him in his intention. He sought the garret quickly, and in his haste he left the door unlocked. Nothing was changed there. The paper had the same rents. The bed, the table, and the chair were still there, with their same old look of poverty. For a moment he breathed this air which reminded him of his former struggles. Then he approached the window and caught sight of the same glimpse of Paris, the trees in the garden, the Seine, the quays, and a part of the right bank of the river where the houses rose up in confused masses, until lost to sight at the point where the Père Lachaise Cemetery appeared in the far distance. The revolver was lying within his reach on the rickety table. There was no hurry now. He felt certain that no one would disturb him and that he could kill himself whenever he pleased. He became absorbed in thought, and he reflected that he was now at the same point as formerly, led back to the same spot, with the same intention of suicide. One evening before, in this very room, he had determined to dash his brains out. In those days he had been too poor to purchase a pistol. He had had only the stones in the streets at his disposal, but death was awaiting him, now as then. So in this world death is the only thing which never fails, which is always sure and always ready. Nothing that he knew of was like death. He sought in vain. All else had given way beneath him. Death alone remained a certainty. He regretted that he had lived ten years too long. The experience that he had acquired of life, in his ascent to fortune and power, 
seemed to him puerile. Why this expenditure of will, to what purpose this waste of force, since will and force were not everything? One passion had sufficed to destroy him. He had foolishly allowed himself to love Flavie, and now the edifice which he had built up was cracking, collapsing like a mere house of cards, swept away by the breath of a child. It was lamentable. It resembled the punishment of a marauding schoolboy, under whom a branch snaps, and who perishes there where he had sinned. Life was a mistake. The best men ended it as tamely as the fools. Nantes had taken the revolver from the table and was slowly loading it. At this supreme moment one last regret made him hesitate for a second. What great things he would have realized if Flavie had understood him! On the day when she had thrown herself on his neck, saying, I love you, on that day he would have found a lever to move the world. And his last thought was one of disdain for force, since force had not been able to give him Flavie. He raised the revolver. The morning was a glorious one. Through the open window the sun poured in, giving even a look of brightness to the wretched garret. In the distance Paris was awakening to its giant life. Nantes pressed the barrel to his temple. But the door was suddenly flung open, and Flavie entered. With one movement she dashed the weapon aside, and the bullet lodged itself in the ceiling. They looked at one another. She was so out of breath, so choked with emotion, that she could not speak. At last, embracing Nantes for the first time, she uttered the only words which could have determined him to live. "'I love you!' she cried, sobbing on his breast, and tearing the avowal from her pride, her mastered being. "'I love you because of your strong mind!' End of section 10 Read by Lisa Reichert